You are listening to The Mother Good Podcast, episode number 44. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. This episode is sponsored by The Push Lab. The Push Lab is an online birth course that's offered by my good friend, Dr. Betsy Caldwell, who has a doctor of physical therapy, and she specializes in pelvic health and women's health. Now, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know that I am very passionate about the pelvic floor, given my personal experience with postpartum after giving birth to my daughter. And so I'm a really big advocate of every single woman learning about her pelvic floor and learning the best techniques for managing and keeping a healthy pelvic floor. And that's why I am so excited to share with you Dr. Betsy's birth class because she is a pelvic floor physical therapist. And so much of her birth class is centered around how to have a healthy pelvic floor while you're in labor in delivery, and also in recovery as well. I already took a birth class before giving birth to my daughter, but because it wasn't with a pelvic floor physical therapist, I did not learn any of the proper breathing or pushing techniques that are best for maintaining a healthy pelvic floor. I believe that that contributed to a lot of my postpartum pain and recovery that was extremely difficult. So even if you're not a first-time mom, the Push Lab is the perfect birth course for any mom who has had birth trauma in the past and wants to try things differently this time around, or a mom who's hoping to have a VBAC, a mom who wants an unmedicated birth, or a mom who's open to an epidural or other pain management options. All of our listeners get a discount using the code MOTHERGOOD. You can visit yesmamaco.com to sign up for Dr. Betsy's birth class, the Push Lab. And I myself am almost done with the course and I've just learned so much so I'm so excited to try it in just a few weeks so again that's yesmamaco.com and don't forget to enter the promo code MOTHERGOOD at checkout for Dr. Betsy's class to get a discount. Hi Ashley thank you so much for joining us today. Of course thanks for having me I'm really excited to do this with you and talk to all the mamas out there. Well, I'm sure most people are familiar with who you are since you're an actress in a really popular film, Unplanned, that I know that a lot of our viewers have seen. But for those who aren't familiar with you, could you just tell everyone about yourself a little bit of who you are? My name is Ashley Bratcher, and I am the lead actress from Unplanned. I grew up in rural North Carolina. I got started in acting in 2008 after I graduated from college moved up to New York City, uh, spent a little bit of time there before returning to my Southern roots, experiencing my own unplanned pregnancy with my high school sweetheart, who I had reunited with, took a little break from acting, focused on being a mom, decided to get back into acting in 2012. And that's what I've been doing professionally ever since. That's great. And I know that you're, you said that you're a mother too. And so I'm curious how, I know that men don't get this question as much as, as women. So I, I don't mean to, this to be obviously like a sexist question, but how are you able to balance, you know, the demands of being an actress with being a mother? Since I know that uh, since I'm in a demanding career, I know that that, that can be a really hard aspect. Yeah, I do think that as women, as mothers, we do have a unique relationship within the family and with our children. It is a little bit different. And it does make sense for people to ask that question to women a little bit more than men. I mean, even 
throughout society, the way that we view the role of the mother in the home. Um, it's been important for my husband and I to develop a partnership. I mean, we, we consider ourselves teammates. There's definitely been, been moments in our marriage where one of us is giving more or taking more. And it's something that we've come to terms with because we know there are going to be ebbs and flows throughout this thing we call life. Um, it's important for me to stay connected with my son and my husband when I'm on the road because I do travel so much. We're really big into love languages. Like we know that filling our love tank, so to speak, really strengthens our relationships. But for me, uh, my husband and my son, they their primary love languages are physical touch and quality mm. time. And if you can imagine, that's really difficult to fulfill that need when you're on the road. And we've had to be really creative. So we do a lot of FaceTime rather than just talking on the phone, because at least when you're FaceTiming, you have that quality interaction where you're not as distracted. Right. Um, my son loves for me to take books on the road. That's one of our things is that we usually will start a book together and then I'll take it with me so that I can read it while I'm away. That's been a really fun thing for us to do. Um, sometimes we'll actually watch movies together, even though we're in separate mm. places. It's just been, you know, that's one thing that you really have to dedicate time to is prioritizing your family when you're away because your career is always going to come and go. Um, but your family, I think needs to be the most important thing. So scheduling that time, no matter how busy you are and saying, okay, this is a priority. I might be at dinner right now with 15 people having this, you know, client meeting or whatever. But if my son calls me because he's about to go to bed, I'm going to excuse myself and go take the call from my son and my husband. Right, exactly. And that's so true that, you know, you have to prioritize your children and your family. I know that that's, I know I've mentioned it in the past on podcast episodes that that's something I didn't really give any thought to of the juggling, which is super naive of, of me. You know, I just thought, oh, of course, my life would just go on with a career and somehow kids would fit in the cracks. But there is that juggling, just as you mentioned, in order to to make things work and to prioritize everything. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you you just have to really focus on what's important. I just read this quote about a week ago, and it has not left my mind. I mean, I think of it every single day, and it says, "Schedule your priorities. Don't prioritize your schedule." Mm, I love that. Yeah, it's so. <laughs> I'm gonna have to write that down too. It's so good, and so I mean, I think about that every day because it's so easy to work the opposite way. To think, okay, well, like, where does this fit into my schedule? But no, I mean, like, if <laughs> if you're putting your family first, where does the rest of the stuff need to fit around that time with your family? I think that's really important. Exactly. I'd like to get more into. Uh, more of the details of how you became an actress. I, I know you already briefly touched on that, but just get into that whole journey. And then also a second part question to that, kind of related to the motherhood subject, how and when did you decide to continue that sort of demanding career when having children? Yeah, well, what's funny is my then high school sweetheart, David and I have been together for a total of the 17 years now. We're, we're high school sweethearts. We've been together since we were really young. Uh, and so we thought we were never going to have kids. Like we were that young couple who was like, Oh, we're going to have this fantasy life where we travel the world. We're going to live in New York city. And you know, we're just never going to have kids. Uh, and life throws you curveballs. But I went to college with David. We went to college together. 
and I had majored in graphic design. I had no intention of becoming an actress. I had dabbled in drama class when I was in high school, but I mean, it wasn't really something that seemed attainable to do in North Carolina. And so I was going to go get a graphic design degree. I wanted to work in marketing, marketing and advertising. But my senior year of college, I was one elective short of graduating. And so I decided to take another acting class. And it really just kind of ignited that fire in me. And I had this realization that I was about to graduate with a degree and I could really do whatever I wanted to do in my life. And David and I had gone on a date to the North Carolina State Fair. And while we were at the fair, we walked by this booth and the booth said, do you want to be an actor? And I thought, yeah, sure. Why not? So I walked into this booth and auditioned for this tiny little local commercial. I ended up booking it. Uh, An agent signed me from that. And then that agent introduced me to a bunch of people in New York City. I went up there to visit. I auditioned for a ton of agency managers there. I had 21 different offers from agencies to sign me in New York City. And so I picked one. And then as soon as I graduated, I decided I was going to move to New York City to pursue it. Um, and David at the time, he had one semester left of college. So I had all these grand plans, you know, I was graduating. So I was going to move up to New York city first and create this fantastic life together. We were going to get married. I was going to be famous. I was doing really well. And then all of that just got shot. Um, because when I went to New York city, it was a rude awakening. I was being rejected for the first time in my life. I was really kind of ill-prepared and naive, uh, working really late in the night, like two, three in the morning, getting up, pulling double shifts, waitressing, going to auditions, just wasn't a really good lifestyle for me. I started to get really depressed. I was drinking heavily, dabbling with drugs, staying out all night, getting blackout drunk. It was pretty awful. And I put David through the ringer during that time. I mean, I take full accountability for that. The long distance relationship was horrible for us. And he ended up dumping me. And when he did, I was absolutely devastated because here I was in this big city away from home for the first time in my life, um, all alone with no sense of real identity because I'd been dating him since I was 16 and not knowing who I was. I was putting all of my identity into my work and my success and I didn't have any. So I got really depressed and um, I decided that I was going to move back to North Carolina, basically with my tail between my legs traveling back to my hometown, single, um, without a job, living with my grandma. I, I just thought I'm not going to make it here. And I moved back home to be with my grandma during that time. And then uh, what, what happened after that? Like, how did you get from, you know, North Carolina and leaving what you thought were your actress dreams to obviously now, you know, you, you have a, a successful acting career. So what, how did you transition from, you know, scaling down and kind of leaving that life behind? Yeah, so much. I mean, like I said, I didn't have a sense of who I was. I I definitely didn't have a relationship with God. I was a struggling Christian at that time, just questioning my purpose on earth and came back and was still seeking to be validated in ways that weren't fulfilling. Um, I was desperately hunting down David and trying to get him to take me back. I mean, it was kind of one of those sob stories where like, ah, we broke up, let's get back together. And in that that process of really kind of like fighting for him and seeking his attention and affection in all the wrong ways, um, I I ended up getting pregnant. And when I did, I just felt like 
it was time to grow up. I, abortion was never a thought for me. Um, I did have a sense of faith that had been instilled in me since I was a child. My grandmas were the ones who really taught me about Jesus and my faith started to play a bigger role in my life. And I knew that we had created this tiny little person and like what a miracle it was to, to really think about what has to happen for a baby to form even like how meticulous the details are for you to even get pregnant. And that was so special to me. And I just thought, okay, like our relationship isn't fantastic, but we need to grow up and work through this to provide the best life we can for our child. Um, I ended up getting Medicaid during that time. I was using WIC to pay for groceries because we weren't married. Um, I didn't have, you know, my own health insurance and, that's why I was relying on the government. I needed it during that time. And it was really hard. I mean, it was hard to walk into the grocery store in my hometown where people knew me and they'd see me paying for my groceries with WIC. It was a really humbling experience. And I can relate to the shame and judgment a lot of young girls feel when they don't think they have the support that they need emotionally. It's hard. It really wears on you. Uh, but it made me stronger. I was determined to be a good mom. And shortly after my son was born, David and I ended up getting married, uh, which was fantastic. Um, We we've been fighters like our whole life as in the sense that like, no matter what we go through, we fight for each other and we fight for our family. And that's really what's pushed us through in our relationship that and a lot of Jesus. (laughs) Um, But when my son was born, that was a pivotal moment for me because I looked at him and I just thought, okay, if I can love this tiny little human that I just met so much, then how much must how much more must my heavenly Father and Creator love me? So it was a defining moment in my faith walk that I just thought, okay, like I want to be a good Christian. I want to walk in the plans that God has for me. I want to know more. I want to get to know God. And so, in that process, I submitted my life to God. Um, I went through a little break because I was a mom and I was navigating being that um, and young, a new wife, and I I wasn't going to act. I needed benefits. Okay. That was my goal. (laughs) I I need a job with benefits to take care of my son. (laughs) And so I started teaching middle school art. I taught middle school art in my hometown for three years. And in the third year, um, I had this revelation where I told David, you know, I don't want to look back 50 years from now and regret and wonder if I could have done more or if I should have pursued acting. So I really want to give this thing another go. And at the time, Wilmington, North Carolina had a great film industry. They were shooting all the Nicholas Sparks movies on Dawson's Creek, One Tree Hill, you name it. It was really shooting in Wilmington. So I ventured out to Wilmington, which was about an hour and a half from my hometown. And I started auditioning again. I had an agent sign me. Um, I really just gave my career to God and I was like, okay, look, God, like I can't do this myself. So if you want me to do this, then show me that this is the way. And shortly after I did that, I, I started working um, full time. Wow. So I've been a working actress since 2012. I mean, I didn't get success overnight. I'll say that. <laughs> I did a lot of one liners. I mean, my very first role was uh, on this movie called The Perfect Summer on Up TV, this little um, TV movie. And my line was, she's inside. And <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so God taught me a lot of humility along the way. I think that's really been important in my career, this theme of humility, because I have a much deeper appreciation now 
because of where I've come from and what I've learned along the way. So from 2012 to 2017, 2018, I had really started working more, built up a little bit of a following on social media because I've been very transparent about a lot of the events that have happened in my life, um, just shared my testimony. And I think people really relate to authenticity. And I, I try to do that. I just try to share you know, the positives, the negatives, the struggles, the triumphs. I just try to put it all, all out there so that people don't know that they're alone. And that has really helped me grow my network and share my life in a way that it helps other people. I love your story. And I love, just as you said, how transparent you are on social media and one reason why I really like following you as well, because that's something that's really lacking in most people that you only see the success and you only see the end result. And then you never see the struggle. And especially for younger people, I think that 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 often leads to discouragement when you're trying to figure things out, um, whether it's career, family, relationships, and then you don't see people's struggles along the way. And then uh, you know, you just you just see the you know the happily ever after once someone's already made it. So I really love that you just share all those those parts of your journey and are so transparent about it. Yeah, I'm curious about you. You mentioned that abortion was never a thought, and you know we're pretty open on this page that you know we are pro life since that's obviously pretty much an essential tenet of being a mother is welcoming your child into the into the world. Um, what, what do you say to women, I guess, like as a woman, um, how do you justify being pro-life? Because recently I've just been seeing a lot of things on social media being shared, how, which I'm sure you've seen it before too, that, you know, woman's right with her body and, and just saying that, that this discussion shouldn't even be happening anymore because it's whatever a woman wants, because it's her body, how, how do you, um, what's your thought process of being pro-life as a woman and how do you justify that um, with obviously what everyone else is saying in, in the social media world or just like in the culture in general? First off, I can relate because prior to doing Unplanned, I called myself personally pro-life, meaning I would never have an abortion, but it was not my, um, I, I shouldn't have any opinion or decision. It wasn't my decision what another woman should, you know, ultimately do with her body. I mean, I was, I was in that camp and I honestly attribute it to ignorance on the subject, just blissful ignorance. Um, I, I didn't know, I didn't have enough information about what actually happens during an abortion procedure to think about it. It was kind of one of those uh, shallow topics, those, one of those shallow things that you think about on the surface without really digging deeper into it. Because if you look at it from a bird's eye view, then it's easy to say those things. But when you really dig in and you start doing the research, it doesn't, it doesn't line up. Uh, so when I started working on Unplanned, it was really important for me to know why I believed what I believed. And of course, hearing Abby Johnson's testimony is what shook me and got me thinking because she described an abortion procedure. I had never in my life heard what happens during an abortion procedure. I'd had friends that had had an abortion. I mean, my own mother had shared with me when she was in high school, she had an abortion, but I still never knew the details of it. And it's a pretty gruesome procedure. A lot of people want to talk about early abortions, you know, like when it happens, 
um, like in the first trimester. But do those people know when a baby's heart starts beating? Because a baby's heart starts beating usually before a woman even knows she's knows she's pregnant. Okay, well, that's a pretty significant development for me. The baby's brain is starting to function at the time that most women find out that they're pregnant. Um, a baby has little tiny arms and legs already at the time that most people find out they're pregnant. And and people don't think about that. Yeah, does it look like a little tiny little peanut human? Absolutely. But this is a baby who's developing that has you know, physical features that look like a human. They are. They're developing into this tiny little human. Um, scientifically, we even know that embryos, they fight to live. Even left in a Petri dish, what I thought was so interesting in these studies, you can look them up online. Um, I wish I could cite the source right now. But em- embryos even, they have an, an innate human desire to live. They try to fight for them live, for their lives in a Petri dish. So to me, that says, you know, life, life is designed to fight. Life is designed, you know, for a purpose. And I believe within my faith that every life has purpose. I mean, I have my own personal testimony that I can share about why I believe that. But I think that every single person on this planet has purpose. And uh, the deeper issue is not, you know, when does life begin? Because science does tell us that life, life begins at the moment of conception. When sperm meets egg, life begins. That is when we start to develop as humans. Like no one can argue that. The biggest question that people don't address is like, when, when is um, personhood a thing? Like when does that person have value? Well, I believe that it has value from the very beginning because it's, it's a person that we have to look at, like, when do we value human life? Well, to me, all human life is valuable. And that's a complicated issue that people don't really look at when they're making these broad kind of arguments. Um, when, cause when you get down to the root of it, there's so many things that people don't know. And a lot of abortions happen when this is so gruesome to say, but when babies are developed and they're literally right. being ripped apart, uh, and that is a really gruesome procedure. I think if people knew that babies had to, babies have to literally be put back together in petri dishes so that the abortionist knows the procedure is complete because if they leave a piece of the baby inside the woman, she can get very sick and ultimately die. They have to piece together these parts of the baby. So you're looking at little tiny arms, little tiny legs that are put back together in a petri dish. Seeing that firsthand, and you can see it. Anyone can look it up. You can see these things. Seeing that is a very horrifying thing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you start talking about late-term abortions, people want to talk about how complicated it can be, and that the only time late-term abortions happen are when you know a woman's life is in danger. That's actually not the case. Yes, there are very rare circumstances, but when you've reached that point in pregnancy a doctor's job is to save lives. A baby at that point in uh, development can be, it can be uh, induced. You can deliver the baby still. So for me, there's no, there's absolutely no reason for late term abortion. The baby can still be delivered by a C-section and in a late term abortion, the baby actually has to be induced and delivered vaginally anyway. The only difference is that they inject the baby with digoxin to stop their heart. So they actually kill the baby in utero and then induce an unnatural labor to deliver a a dead baby. It's horrible. People don't know these things. And that's why I say it goes back to 
to ignorance on the subject. It's not because we all, you know, think that a woman should have this right to choose because, um, you know, it's best for her. That's just a, that's a very shallow argument. I think when you look at the complexity of the actual procedure and what happens and you know more, then you start to think, oh, okay, well, this is actually, this is not a good thing. And, and women, women get abortions late term. People don't want to admit this either. Women get abortions all the time, late term for any reason whatsoever. People are like, no, that doesn't happen. No, that doesn't happen. Well, actually we have evidence that shows that it does happen. Uh, one of the abortion doctors that I worked with on unplanned, his name is Dr. Anthony Levitino. He told me firsthand that he had a patient who came in and she was pregnant for, I think the second or third time and she was a senior in high school and she'd come in six months pregnant and wanted an abortion simply because she didn't want to be pregnant. Oh my goodness. Wow. And she was able to get the abortion. So she aborted a six month old baby in utero simply because she didn't want to be pregnant at prom. It happens. People don't want to say that it happens, but it happens without a doubt. It's so true to what you were talking about, how, you know, the, the side that's for abortion that they like emphasizing the first term abortions that aren't as graphic, uh, but still graphic, just as you were describing um, with the Pichu dish and everything. Uh, and I, I, for some reason, I have a lot of friends in the medical fields. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, like nurse friends, PA friends, doctor friends. And they've all said the same thing that when, when they're learning about abortion in their, you know, schools, their whatever it is, you know, PA school, uh, medical school, whatnot, that they do emphasize the early term abortion. And then they, they don't really address the later term abortion, which is <laughs> kind of propaganda in a way, you know, just to kind of gloss over then say, oh, well, you know, let's go over the first term, which isn't as bad, but obviously the other ones are are pretty gruesome, just as you were saying. So that's, de- that's definitely mm-hmm. true. Absolutely. And then of course, there's always the argument against rape. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a huge, huge argument for people. But we know that, you know, it's like, I think it's less than less than 3% or it might even be like less than 1%. I wish I had the numbers in front of me. It's a very, 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 very small number of abortions that are done because of rape or incest in some cases. And so when you start arguing for the 3%, then you need to say like, okay, well, what's your argument for the 97% of abortions that happen electively for, you know, any reason like socioeconomic status or the fact that I just don't want to be pregnant. And even when we start talking about, about rape, you know, like what a horrible crime and trauma that it is for a woman. No one can deny that it's a horrible traumatic experience. And a woman has been violated in one of the most horrific ways. And now she's pregnant. But is that life still a life? Absolutely. A baby who is conceived in rape is no different than a baby who has been conceived in love. There's absolutely no difference in their lives. What's different is the woman's experience. And none of us are so fortunate that we are able to choose our parents. What happens during a rape is that you're sentencing an innocent child to death for the crimes of their father. Do I think that rapists should have any parental rights? Absolutely not. Immediately, they should be stripped of any potential parental rights. They have none whatsoever. But I don't think that it's fair to sentence a child to death for the crimes committed by their father. Um, I realize it's a completely complex situation for the woman, but abortion only adds trauma to trauma. 
Abortion does not erase the experience. Abortion does not fix the problem. It just adds trauma on top of trauma. And that experience never goes away. Definitely. Going back to the shame and judgment that you mentioned that you can identify that young mothers feel, how do you think we can help change that in society? Because I remember reading a study years ago saying that 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 is one motivating factor of why a lot of women do choose an abortion, just the lack of support in their community. And obviously you felt that uh, somewhat. So what helped you get through that? And then how do you think we could change that in society so that there would be less shame and judgment? I think that good friends are friends that say, I'm here for you. I think that there are a lot of women who just need to hear somebody say that I'm here for you and I'm going to walk alongside you and I'm going to help you. We need to be less judgmental of women who choose to have their babies and they're not in a good position. We need to be more supportive and less judgmental. Um, I remember one of the first things somebody said to me when I was pregnant was, I can't believe you're going to throw away your career for this. And that was devastating to hear because I just thought this is so important. You know, this is a life that we've created. That's insane for somebody to say that to me. And I think that sometimes society places such value on success, 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 success. But at the end of the day, what is truly success? Well, I mean, are you happy? Can you look at yourself in the mirror and be okay with the decisions that you've made that day? 50 years from now, is this going to matter? What, what matters when you're 70 years old and sitting in a rocking chair looking out, you know, at what you have in front of you and the life that you've created for yourself? Um, I think as, as a whole, society has placed a lot of emphasis on mat- material success. I mean, we talk about the whole situation with um, uh, Michelle Williams and the Golden Globes, I think it was, and how right. she said she was able to hold this statue essentially in her hands because she was able to make a choice. And it made me really sad because it, if for a lot of women, it was like, I did this thing and now I have this success because, because I didn't have children. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that say for all the women who are equally successful or more successful and did it with children? Their lives are so rich. I mean, let's, let's focus on those power stories of incredible women who are insanely successful and did it with children. Those are the real super women. I mean, how cool that you can do these things as a mother. And we need to instill that in women more that, yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can do these things and still be a mother. It just takes a little bit of help from the community for people to step up and say, here's the resource. You know, There's 2,400 pregnancy resource centers across the world, the majority of them here in the United States. So in every town, there's two or three probably resource centers in the community that you can reach out to where these people are going to provide physical resources, mentorship, classes, um, help you file any paperwork you need to file. The the resources are there. I just think there's not the awareness that's needed to go along with them. And it's so much more empowering, too, to hear from someone who does have children, who did choose life, and then also still has their career just as, as you, you know, that you chose to have your child and then also have this acting career. Um, You know, the, the whole mentality of just not having kids or kids getting in the way. I mean, I even felt it myself, even when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I'm sure a lot of that was just hormones and emotions to have being pregnant. But, mm-hmm. you know, even though that we 100% intended on 
on getting pregnant and having a daughter, those thoughts even race in my head too, that, you know, I'm, what is my life going to look like after this? Am I going to be able to be successful in my career after this and those sorts of things? And so when you only hear the one side of the Michelle Williams actress, you know, or anyone else just basically saying how that children get in the way of things that it's, it's really discouraging for moms. So I'm, I'm so glad that there's women like you who are able to do it. Not, I I hate, kind of hate the phrase like doing it all because obviously there's like some juggling and sacrificing, but you know what I mean? That you, you can have children and still pursue your career. So I, I love too how you ended up teaching middle school for three years. So I just love to hear your thoughts on, since you said that you mentioned to your husband that you didn't want to regret not trying it, how did you make that leap in terms of, you know, mentally and just deciding to go for it? And then also just logistically, because I know that a lot of moms I've spoken to and know personally that they do have these dreams that they do want to pursue, but they just kind of feel a little stuck that they can't really do it because maybe they have a toddler or a a few kids and they just feel overwhelmed, but they still have these dreams. What would you tell them of, you know, how to juggle everything and how to make the determination that they should actually try whatever dream that they do have? Yeah. All all dreams require action. Otherwise they just remain a dream. Uh, You have to put a plan together to make those dreams a reality And for me, it was a conversation that I had with my husband. Emotionally, we knew the toll that this would have on our relationship if I did regret it. You know, I could ultimately become resentful in my relationship. My marriage could suffer if I didn't take the chance to do this. Mm. And so we were very aware of the emotional consequences of me not going for it. Um, And so that was a decision we came together on. I'm not going to say it was easy because... uh, like with any job, you don't start out making a great amount of money. I I, I wasn't making a ton of money starting out in acting. So it's that kind of normal struggle you have within a marriage where, you know, you want to get things done, but there's a back and forth with like, what kind of sacrifices does that take? And I was married. Thank God I had a partner and all of that. And I did have family around me to help me. But I have tons of single friends, and in particular, single friends who are in the industry, and it is quite challenging mm-hmm. for them. It requires someone being vulnerable enough to ask for help because you're not always going to get offered help. Right. Uh, it's easy for someone on the outside to kind of forget that you're over there trying to be super mom and do it all, and you have dreams and ambitions. So you have to be vulnerable enough to ask for help. And when a helping hand is extended to take it, you really do have to put yourself out there and say, hey, can you do this for me? And the majority of the time, especially when you have good friends, they'll say, yeah, of course, I can do this for you. And you develop relationships where you can trust people. And that's hard, too, I think, as a single mom or as an adult, period. The older we get, the harder it is to make good friends. Mm. I think we, we build a lot of walls because we don't want to put it, put forth the emotional effort that it takes to develop new relationships. And I struggled with that because I moved to Atlanta in 2018 after spending my entire life in North Carolina. So I had to put myself in um, a whole new group. I had to go out and find women. I was tired of sitting at home alone and not having that camaraderie with other women 
So I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm really desperate for friends. I'm gonna be quite honest. I'm desperate for friends. Mm. So I hosted like a little bunko party at my house and I put out a message and said, Hey ladies, like, I know this is silly, but I'm going to have a little costume party, bunko party (laughs) at my house. And anybody who wants to come, you know, I'm looking for friends. If you want to come mingle and look for friends, then let's get together. Mm. And from that experience, just a couple of months ago, I have developed really close relationships Mm. with maybe three or four women from that group who I can call and say, Hey, like I'm stuck in traffic in Atlanta. Can you go pick up my kid from, from school today? I'm not going to make it back in time. And there are people who would say, yeah, absolutely. I can help you. But I wouldn't have those relationships if I hadn't pursued them. So it's important no matter what your situation is to put together a plan of action because without that and without making yourself vulnerable, it's always going to be a dream. That's so interesting that you said that as you get older, it's harder to make friends. I, I was wondering if that was just me. <laughs> uh, privately, I've <laughs> confided into a couple close friends. You know, since I turned thirty a few years ago, I was like, "Is it just me?" Or you know, I just feel like I'm sort of turning into. I know this sounds kind of bad, but like a Grinch sort of, that I just am like, eh, I'm fine the way that I am. Like, I don't need to be in my twenties. I'm like, oh, everyone's my friend, and then. I made it They're a not lot there. of close friends, but then I also got burned. So in my 30s, I'm like, eh, I'm good. Um, <laughs> it hurts, right? Because yeah. like when you invest emotionally in someone and then it doesn't work out, you become a little jaded sometimes. Right. <laughs> and then you don't want to be as vulnerable. You don't want to share every aspect of your life. Exactly. There's a really, there's a really fantastic book that I read and it's called Relational Intelligence. Mm. Um, the author's first name is Darius. I can't remember his last name right now, but it's called relational intelligence. And what I love about that book is it helps you define relationships because Mm -hmm. not every single person you meet has to be in your intimate circle, right? They can, it's okay to have acquaintances, but it's really important to determine what people in your life you give access to that intimate part of your life so that you're not setting yourself up with false expectations. And then you do feel a little bit more confident when you develop those intimate relationships and it's a little less burdensome to have realistic expectations about those relationships, but yet you're not alone. Like, eh, I think we all struggle with it because (laughs) yeah, you get burned and you think, Oh man, that like took a lot of emotional effort. You know, my heart is hurt. Can I do that again? Do I want to do that again? But we're designed to, to be in fellowship with other people. We're not designed as humans to be alone and just be comfortable watching Netflix. (laughs) It's so true. And it's funny because I I was having those thoughts like pre-COVID and everything. And so I feel like if anything good came out of being in quarantine or whatnot, it kind of made me realize for myself that, oh yes, actually, never mind. I do (laughs) need the, the close friendships and everything. And Yeah. And luckily I have a really good mom's group. Um, One of my good friends, um, she, you know, started this, this mom's group at at our church and it's just taken off even, even amidst COVID, you know, we had like the zoom meetings and then now we've been able to have socially distancing, you know, get togethers in the backyard or whatnot. And it's just so nice just to be able to talk and just as you were saying, form, form those close relationships, but I'll have to check out, you said that the book is called relational intelligence. Is that, is that what it's called? Yes, relational intelligence. Okay, I'm writing that down. <laughs> it's a book to read in the future. So I'd love to switch gears a little bit to talk more about specifically you getting your role at in the movie Unplanned. Uh, how did that come about and what was the journey to to get that role? 
Oh my gosh. It was so random. So random. Like I had mentioned, I had started to build up a little bit of a following because I had been working consistently and I had worked a ton in faith-based film. That was kind of where um, I got my start and I got a little bit of recognition. So I had this woman reach out to me in early 2018 and she sent me a message on Instagram. I did not know her. And she said, Ashley, I have been praying for you for a year. And I feel like the Lord has told me that you're meant to play the role of this woman named Abby Johnson. Would you consider auditioning for this film? And I mean, I get stuff like that from time to time, but I always audition through my agent because I never know like what's legitimate or if right. like, these people even have, you know, a camera, like they could be in their basement with an iPhone. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. So I was just responding. I was like, Oh, you're so sweet. Like, thank you so much. And then totally blew her off. Um, <laughs> and so two weeks, two weeks later though, she was so uh, persistent. And she said, Ashley, do you ever audition for that role? I really, really feel like you're meant to play this role. Like, can you please, you know, talk to this producer and, and see what they have to say. And I said, okay, fine. You know, like I'm not auditioning right now. It'll be like a great little, just acting exercise, whatever. I'll look at it. So she got the producer to send me the sides, a couple of pages from the script to audition with. And when I read it, I found it to be really, really interesting. Uh, It was just a scene where Abby was working at Planned Parenthood. It was all pro-choice stuff, to be honest. So Abby was working at Planned Parenthood. She was confronting the people outside the fence who were the pro-life protesters. And then there was another scene where she was talking about her own abortion she'd had. And what I liked about her, though, was that she was really witty. Mm. She was you know, charismatic. I could totally get a sense for the character just through those couple of pages of sides. And so I was like, oh, she's really cool. You know, like, oh, she's a real person. I've already seen this audition. Maybe I kind of want to find out more information about her. So I looked her up online after I had auditioned, which is kind of backwards. Um, but when I heard her speak and I heard her testimony, that was when everything changed for me. That was when my heart got set on fire and I felt like I really, really wanted to be a part of telling this story. I felt like I had been woken up and I wanted other people to be woken up and have their eyes just open to the reality of this. And I became the crazy lady from Instagram and I was like, I am meant to play this role. (laughs) I was like, it's for me. And I just, I mean, I cried. I would like randomly cry for weeks afterwards and be like, David, like, I just know this is the role for me. Like, this is the moment I've been preparing for. And just felt like God put it on my heart. And anyway, a couple of weeks later, I did finally get a phone call from the producers who let me know that I was in top consideration. And they were very frank with me and told me there was a possibility I could be blacklisted, that people wouldn't ever want to work with me again if I did this movie. And they just wanted to know where I stood, if I was willing to rise to that mm-hmm. challenge. And I told them I know who I am. I I don't get my worth from my projects. I don't find you know my identity in fame. I'm, I my identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. So let's do it. Right. And um, they were like, okay, well we have one other person in mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just like, thanks guys. And they said, you know, they'd let me know the next morning that there was a possibility I would need to fly out to shoot the movie within a couple of days if they chose me. And so oh, I was wow. prepared for that and had, had conversations with my husband in the event that they chose me. And, um, the next day I just like waited and waited for their call. <laughs> they told me to call me at 11 and they didn't call me. It's like 1145 or something. So I'm freaking out. <laughs> and when I finally heard from them, the producer said, 
Ashley, I'm so happy to offer you the role of Abby Johnson. Can you get on a plane in four hours? Oh my gosh. And I'm like, that's a big difference from a couple of days. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it was insane. So, I mean, I told them, yes, I was mentally prepared. I was emotionally prepared. Um, I'd had conversations with my husband and my son. So I went and I packed my bag for seven weeks in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And I took off on a plane and um, hit the ground running from there, just preparing as fast wow. as I could because we were set to start shooting. I think it was in six days from the day I arrived. Like I had just gotten the script. It was a hundred and some pages. Didn't know Abby at all. Oh, had never had a conversation with her. Hadn't finished reading her book. I mean, nothing. There was so much to prepare. So I hit the ground running in Oklahoma. And wow. That was when... You know, after I had arrived, I got some interesting news from my mom. Wow. That's such a crazy story. And just, I just love how you were just willing to even take the potentially blacklisted, you know, status as an actress that I know that that's something that I think Jim Caviezel has talked about too, obviously when he took his role in the passion. And uh, it's just so Mm -hmm. unfortunate that you can participate in something so wholesome and trying to do something so good and you're blacklisted for your beliefs like that. That's just so terrible, but it is, it's really unfortunate because as storytellers, our job is to, you know, understand people and relate and whether or not we even believe in what they believe in, which fortunately I do, uh, we tell stories, you know, and exactly. I and think then- that even just, actor like looking at the story it's a fantastic story what a great transformation this character goes through right and then also just respecting other people's beliefs too because obviously mm-hmm. not everyone's going to agree with a storyline for every single movie that comes out and then people aren't blacklisted because they didn't like i don't know whatever someone portrayed in whatever film so it's, it's really a shame and i just think it's so courageous of you to just be willing to take that chance uh, for your beliefs. That's, that's really admirable. Well, thank you. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit. I know I heard you on another podcast talk a little bit about your mental health. And I just think that that's so important, especially as a mom to, as you were even mentioning yourself, you know, accept help and then also acknowledge your help. So I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about that aspect of your life of just of living, uh, you know, with the mental health condition that you have and then any advice that you have for other mothers who are struggling as well? Yeah, I think that for the majority of my adult life, I was definitely battling a mental disorder that I didn't even know I had. Um, I would go through extreme periods of high where I was taking on the world like I was superwoman. I mean, I could be so creative that I could write a script within three days, which is pretty intense. Um, I'd go on for hours and hours and hours and sleep on maybe like two hours of sleep. And this would not just be a couple of days. This would be for weeks to, I think the longest stretch was like three months at the time where Mm -hmm. I was like going, like I was just drinking Red Bull three times a day. And there was nothing wrong with it. I was like in this state of euphoria. I was so happy. Um, I just, I wanted to go, 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 go. But then that was always followed by an extreme low. Um, And during those moments when I was high too, like on life, I mean, I didn't make uh, really like logical decisions. 
I was making decisions that were kind of like rooted in fantasy, to be quite honest, like uh, just really questionable decisions or drinking heavily or just like living life really frivolously and kind of an adrenaline junkie, like doing things that weren't good for me. Um, Lots of horrible decisions I made during those times in my life, but not knowing like why I was doing it because people would be like, Oh, Ashley, why did you do that? And I'd just be like, Oh, I don't really know. Like I didn't have a clear answer as to why I was making those decisions. And then afterwards mm-hmm. coming down to that really, really low and not knowing anything about depression, never having talks about mental health in my life at all. It wasn't a discussion we had within our family. Uh, I remember the time that I got super depressed. I think it was in 2015 or 2016, maybe. Um, I'm, I kind of blank on the year now. I thought I was dying. Like I thought that there mm. was something wrong with me. Like I had cancer because I was so lethargic. Like I just wanted to sleep 16 hours a day. I had zero motivation. I was so sad. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I had a kid in kindergarten at the time. And I just, I was, I felt like a horrible person. I felt like everything in the world was my fault. And I went to the doctor and was just like, I think I have cancer. You know, like there's something really wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And he ran all the tests. All of my blood work came back clean. Like I did everything. And he was like, you're in great health. And he was like, have you ever been diagnosed with depression? And I was like, no, like, uh, I mean, I, I've never considered that. And what I didn't know at the time either was that depression can manifest as anger and I was having tons of fights with my husband, like for no reason. I really like little things I would blow up. And I, when I say blow up, I mean like rage, like stuff that just didn't even make sense, like the way I would respond. And mm. people would be like, why are you so upset about this? And I'd just be so like outrageous in my response. And so I started explaining to the doctor, he started asking about my history. And, you know, we talked about these different cycles I was going through. And he said to me, Ashley, I think that you might be textbook bipolar type two. And no one had ever said that to me before. Um, and in that moment, I was like, oh, wait, I think like my great or like, I think my aunt has that. I don't really know. Because like I said, we never talked about mental health in my family. Right. And so right. when he said that, I wasn't in denial because it was bittersweet to kind of have this answer for why you did things the way you did them, like the decisions I made, the highs, the lows, everything in between. And so it was bittersweet. There was a part of me that wanted to be like, no, like that's not real. But the other part of me was like, oh, I have an explanation. So he referred me to a psychiatrist um, and I got a second opinion and I got a third opinion. And I was just like, okay, well, I guess maybe if like three or four people think I have it, then I probably have it. And I kind of came to terms with that. Um, Got into therapy, which was incredibly helpful and um, got on the medication merry-go-round I call it because that's probably the most difficult part of dealing with mental health is the medication. Like not only the stigma around mental health and medication, because people are like, Oh, you know, if you're depressed, just go for a run, get some sunshine. Da, da, da. And you're like, yeah, that's all great. But like when you don't even feel like getting up and taking a shower, it's, it's really hard to do anything else. Um, and it's hard to explain for people who don't get it. So mm-hmm. trying to experiment with different medications to figure out what works for you is, Uh, it was so difficult because some of them don't start working for six to eight weeks. So you're putting a lot of faith in a medication that might not even work for you or might have major side effects. Um, So for that first year um, I was leaning a lot on the medication and the advice of my doctor. And I ended up getting put on this one medication that just was not right for me. I mean, it, it might be right for a lot of other people. So I won't say what it was, 
but it was not right for me. And I was not given adequate information from my doctor prior to taking it. And I just told him, you know, I was having narcolepsy from this medication, like literally like falling asleep in public, like couldn't drive home. Oh my gosh. It was a bad experience. So I told him what was happening. I said, I can't parent this way. Like I can't even get up in the morning. Like this is happening to me. It's a very rare kind of experience that he had never dealt with before. And he said, based on the dose I was on, I could stop taking it cold turkey. Well, okay. Like I'm, I'm not experienced. I listened to the doctor. Well, it was an antipsychotic. And if you know anything about medication, antipsychotics are not something you stop taking cold turkey. That's, that's a medication you have to be slowly tapered off of. So in my experience, I had just this traumatic reaction going into withdrawal where I started having panic attacks every five minutes. Um, I was waking up at five in the morning, throwing up, um, almost like a heroin addict. It put me in such a spiral that I became suicidal. Um, I didn't think that I could make it. And I just told my husband and my family, this went on for weeks, that I just, I was not well to the point that I asked them to take me to a mental institution. Um, And I was at a point where I was going to leave my family and be in a mental institution full time. And I was, I had come to terms with it because I didn't think I could get better on my own. But what ended up happening is I found a really amazing facility in Wilmington, North Carolina, where I was living that I was able to participate in a partial hospitalization program where I was able to go to group therapy and, um, for psychiatric evaluation and and all kinds of learning uh, for eight hours a day. And if I didn't show up, they'd come look for you. Like it was, you had me there. Uh, But I learned a lot through that process, not only about myself, but about, you know, medication and learning what worked for me and getting a doctor that you can have great open conversations with. Like your, your relationship with your doctor is so important. If you feel like your doctor is not listening to you, find another doctor. Do not go to a doctor that you feel like you're not being heard by. Um, So this doctor in particular had gained my trust. Um, I'd learned a lot in group therapy. I had gained a lot of empathy because there were a lot of people in worse situations than me. And it opened my eyes to the human experience where I was able to comprehend addiction. I was able to, you know, feel what people feel when they're suicidal, when you feel like you have nothing left in you, when you feel like you're a burden on the world, like a burden on your family where your life just has no value that I was at that place and being able to work through it and develop the tools and skills I needed to get in charge of my brain to be like, no girl, these are lies. Like your brain is lying to you. Like get in control. Like acknowledge these thoughts and then realize that they're lies. Like start thinking logically, use your wise mind, which is what they call it in dialectical behavior therapy. And all of that just helped me push through. I think that bipolar in particular, the way I explain it to people, it's a superpower. But when a superhero has a superpower that they don't know how to use, it can be very destructive. You can cause a lot of harm with a superpower that you don't know how to use or harness. But when you know and you have the self-awareness of your disorder, you can really use it to your benefit. So now when I'm feeling a little hypomanic, I just get really productive. I mean, I can clean my house faster than anybody. I mean, I'm talking like from top (laughs) to bottom. Like, I mean, I get very creative. So when I have those spurts, I'm like, okay, I'm aware this is happening. What can I do to be productive? How can I manage this? Great. I'm going to utilize it. And then when I'm feeling down, I give myself a lot more grace now. 
I'm like, you know what? Your body's telling you that you do need to slow down because this is how your brain works. Give yourself some grace. If you need to take a day to watch Netflix and eat ice cream, then so be it. I'm going to take a mental health day. And having a compassionate spouse or someone else in your life that is willing to learn with you is so valuable because uh, it, it helps you really give yourself grace. And it allows that other person to have a deeper understanding of what you're going through. So I don't, I think it's important for people not to let their mental health define them as a person because you're so much more. It's important to look within your mental health and see what the silver lining is. How does this help you to be a more well-rounded person? Does it give you more insight into um, other people's lives, more empathy, more compassion? I think people sometimes love harder when they suffer from mental mental illness. Um, So I, I think that it's not, yeah, there's a lot of hard things that come along with the struggles, but when you can find the silver lining and how it helps other people and even yourself, it can be a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I know that it's yeah, really personal and, and vulnerable of you to share it. And I just love how you find the silver lining in that because instead of just getting so down on yourself for having whatever mental illness or whatever that you're going through that you're able to find the positives of that. And that's such a gift. And, and I think that everyone needs to do more of that, including myself, you know, so that that's so important. Um, I know that we're running out of time, uh, but I noticed that you did mention like the stigma around mental health. And I have noticed that it seems like there is more of a stigma, at least from my perspective in, people who, uh, you know, are people of faith. Um, you mm-hmm. know, obviously I'm a Christian too. Uh, so how, I guess, how would you, or what recommendations would you give to someone who is a Christian and is struggling with mental health, but then doesn't really have that support from their community because of that yeah. stigma, which does seem to come more around in, in people who are people of faith. Oh my gosh. Okay. So first thing, Christians, if you're listening, please never, ever, ever tell a person, well, you know, God can just heal you. If you believe God can just heal you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, get out of here. <laughs> and okay, yeah. like, I'm not saying that God can't heal people, but he right. doesn't heal everyone. And I think right. that we, you know, like I, I, like I explained, I think that my disorder in particular is one of my superpowers. I think that my brain was perfectly designed to work the way that it does for a reason. A lot of creatives do face mental illness, but for me, I see it as a blessing because God has given me the tools and the resources around me to utilize it that way. So please, 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 please don't tell people that God can just heal them. (laughs) Your job. (laughs) Or your faith isn't strong enough. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Your job as a Christian is to be the body of Christ. And what's the ultimate thing that God said to us? So, you know, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their love. So like love other people. What does it mean to love and serve someone? It means to like be there for them. Like just to say like, you know, I am here for you. That's the other, I mean, that's the thing I always go back to is like, people just want to know you're there for them and try to understand try to understand, be like, can you explain that more to me from um, your side of the story? Like, how does your brain work? What, what are some things that I can, how can I be here for you? That's the thing that my husband always says is he goes, how can I, how can I help? How can I be here for you? And sometimes we won't have the words. We won't even know right. how to say we can be, you can be there for us. Sometimes it just is a matter of you sitting there. <laughs> like, right. 
you just sitting there. So as a Christian, I think it's just so important to not judge, not, and that comes by saying, you know, like you don't have enough faith because you don't believe God can heal you. That's judgment. Like don't judge. Okay. Like try to empathize more, try to walk in love. Um, sometimes your friends who are in the middle of depression, they're not going to want to go out. Like you're going to invite them out 15 times and they're going to say no for a multitude of different reasons. That does not mean that they don't want to be your friend. It means that they're struggling for some reason, but don't stop. Don't give Mm -hmm. up on them. Check in on them. Say, how are you feeling? Like enough with the small talk, like your real friends, the body of Christ, like get past the small talk be like, I noticed that you're struggling a little bit, you know, like how's your relationship with your husband or How's your relationship with your sister? Like, mm-hmm. I noticed that you're taking on a lot right now. Do you need help with the kids? Like, there's all these different ways that we can serve each other. And that's what we really need to be doing with our faith. I love that so much. That's the perfect response. So thank you for sharing that. So in conclusion, I'd love to ask the question that we ask all of the mothers who come on our show. And that's uh, a question in line with our motto, which is, when is the time that you realize it's okay to not be a perfect mom, since obviously we have that pressure in society and everything from other moms, and it's okay to be a good one instead? Absolutely. Uh, The moments of motherhood are so fleeting. In reality, we have 18 years before our kid is an adult and they can move out and be on their own. And in the midst of the chaos and as hard as it is in those moments where you're up at 3 a.m. feeding your baby or you're stepping over Legos for the 17th time after you put them away, like, you know, there's, there's spilled milk in the middle of like one of your most frantic moments. Try to remember the, the positives. Try to remember those moments that are fleeting. Like I just I posted on Instagram the other day because I was having one of those moments where I was like, oh my gosh, like I don't give my son a bath anymore. Like I don't remember the last time I ran bath water through his hair. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like, you know, at some point he's not going to want to snuggle up in bed with mommy. Like he's not, he's going to stop asking. So try to just be as present as you can. Just remember that these moments are fleeting. Every time that you say not right now to your kid or just a few more minutes, like just give me a few more minutes. I have to send this email. Every time you say that to your kid, when you get in the habit of saying that, what you're saying to them and what they're hearing are two different things. Like you may be trying to finish up business so you can give them your your full attention, but your kid is hearing, I'm not important. Mm. You don't care. And so try to be present set boundaries. It's okay not to be perfect because also when you try to be perfect, your kids think they have to be perfect. Do you Mm. want to raise a kid who's a perfectionist? No, none of us want to be a perfectionist. It's not fun. (laughs) (laughs) So imagine passing on that trait to your kids. We want to be good moms. We do. So remember that being a good mom means don't turn your kid into a perfectionist. (laughs) You know? I like, love that spin on it. I've never heard that before. <laughs> that just really hits home. I'm going to have to remember that even more is just a reminder of why I shouldn't be a perfectionist. Yeah, it's okay. You know, your kids learn from your mess ups too. I can't even number the amount of times I've gone to my son and been like, hey, you know, I didn't respond right in that moment. And I'm really sorry, kiddo. Like, I'm trying to be a good mommy too. And I'm learning. It's okay to tell your kids that. They appreciate it. They're not stupid. They get it. That really hit home what you were saying about, you know, just really cherishing even the 3 a.m. feedings. Because with my daughter, who's now almost three, that I really didn't do that. Um, 
I didn't really realize, you know, how fast everything went. I just kind of was over staying up all night and all, the loss of sleep or whatnot. But I just saw this this quote and I hung it up in our baby boy's room above where I feed him. And I just love it. It kind of makes me a little teary eyed, mm-hmm. but I just figured I'd share because it kind of reminds me of what you were saying. It just says, hold him a little longer, rock him a little more, tell him another story you've already told him for, let him sleep on your shoulder, rejoice in his happy smile. He's only a little boy for just a little while. And I just, when I read that, I was like, yes, I just need that reminder. (laughs) Because when it does get hard, it is important to remember that just, it does go so fast, just as you were Mm -hmm. saying. Every night, my son, every single night, I get ready to leave his room. Okay, good night, baby. Mommy, can you stay for one more minute? <laughs> so I just I plan for it now. I'm like, I know when he's going to say it. So I, I always say Aww. yes. And it means so much to him. Very, I, I, I mean, very, very, very rarely am I like, no, mommy's got to really go. Almost always, like 99% of the time, I'm like, okay, mommy will be here one more minute. And it just means so much. He feels so special. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Well, gosh, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on our show and making the time. I know that you're very busy and as you know, just as you were saying with your career, I know it's super demanding. So I really appreciate the time and and effort of you coming on and sharing your story. And I know that everyone will just love hearing your story and everything that you've shared today as well. Of course. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be a part of your network and your tribe. And I'm just I'm I love following everything that you stand for. Well thank you so much. That means so much. Mm-hmm.